Hello and welcome to another episode of A Capital Record and welcome to a third time guest. We have very few of those, uh, but Jerry Boyer is going to now be the, um, let's see here, is it the second or third? No, he's the third guest on Capital Record to come back for the third time. The other two, so Jerry knows the company he's in with here, is the esteemed Art Laffer. My and goodness. then uh, Sam Rines of Corbu, uh, one mm. of my favorite research firms on Wall Street. And so the fact that I've asked Jerry to come back a third time should tell you how much I value him and, and appreciate him. And we do have an important topic to cover today. I want to set this up real quick before I bring Jerry on. Um, there are very few things that National Review's Capital Matters has addressed more and has had more interest in and kind of heat around since we launched in the middle of 2020, and the overall issue of ESG uh, involved with investing. And I've had quite a few different guests of different themes and particular approaches around this general topic since we launched the Capital Record podcast. But more or less, the theme for many, and I assume this applies to a lot of you listening, has something to do with a concern that there is a movement afoot to utilize the rather emotive and um, powerful terms of environmental, social, governance to attach to investing a stigma to allow for various control factors to uh, come in uh, from sources of power. And whether it be just the mere influence of environmentalists demanding ESG scores before they place money somewhere or giving a rating system, whether it be pension funds who control uh, ungodly amounts of money. And in that sense, I might not be using the word ungodly as a metaphor. <laughs> um, pension uh, funds at, at municipalities, states, counties, uh, and so forth. Uh, demanding certain ESG adherence, um, and even just a broader cultural sense in which there is a great deal of influence uh, from the powers that be around, um, you know, various aspects of compliance with uh, the modern secular religion. I will say that a lot of our criticism on Capitol Record, including one of my uh, favorite interviews we did with a really uh, esteemed NYU professor was to focus on a criticism of the movement that is really um, uh, about the kind of in in inerrant contradiction of ESG, the lack of specificity, the lack of criteria, definition, and the false claims it might make about giving up nothing and yet getting a higher performance while also saving the world. But a lot of the focus is on people who are mad at the control from power through these uh, ill-defined mediums of ideology or, or agendas of ideology, using their mediums to exert power and control and influence. And a lot of people saying, what in the world are we supposed to do about it? And this is why I have Jerry on today, not to do a podcast on the anti-ESG movement. Rather, for us to have a more constructive and um, solutions-oriented conversation 
about the um, unnecessary defeatism of shareholders who have become convinced that BlackRock runs the world and that there is nothing they can do about the fact that all of America is going woke and they're all going to throw away the pursuit of profits for a silly green agenda. There's a lot of silly things going on. There's a lot of evil things going on. But there's nothing going on that represents the need for us to surrender to defeatism. And Jerry is the most qualified person I know to talk about this and where shareholders have rights, have ability, how we want to think about a lot of these overall issues. It goes just be it goes beyond ESG. It goes down to really what the uh, financial and legal and structural relationship is between a company and its equity shareholder and how a shareholder who does care about these issues, who does have ideological convictions, who for those of you who are men and women of faith has a worldview that you uh, care about, where these things can be brought to light in the world of equity investing, particularly public market equity investing. So Jerry and his wife, Susan, run their own research firm. Jerry has been a consultant to financial advisors, wealth managers, uh, and, and various um, members of financial services industry for many, many years. Uh, he's been a frequent guest on financial media television, and has become a very good friend and someone I look up to tremendously. And Jerry is fighting the good fight every day. And by good fight on this podcast, I mean the cause of a free and virtuous society. So we're going to now bring Jerry on to talk about this issue at great length. Jerry Boyer, welcome back to Capital Record. David, great to be here. The third of thirds. It just seems like such a significant number, right? Three cube, nine. Um, it seems like there must be just enormous implications yeah, but perhaps even eschatologically. Yeah. The, yeah, there is a completeness thing, right? There's the seventh day and then the eighth day and then the ninth day. Um, and I think the thrones and powers in classical medieval, there's nine of the thrones and powers. So I don't know what to make of it, except I'm really glad to be back here talking with my old friend David Bonson again. But I don't think very many listening right now will know what I'm talking about, but I always forget. I think you're a little bit more influenced by Jim Jordan than, than I have been. So the numbers might kind of mean a bit more for you, right? Well, that's true. Yes. No. Yeah. A lot of, uh, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, they, they maybe should. A lot of great, um, significance in some of these ideas. Jerry, um, we are living in interesting times. I want to let the audience know that uh, my firm has engaged your firm. We've been working together on a number of projects. First of all, more informally, we both serve on an advisory board through Alliance Defending Freedom that is pursuing this topic about viewpoint diversity in um, the public square, particularly in public equity marketplace. Uh, but more specifically and granular, uh, you've been doing work on behalf of me as a shareholder and, and, and with a larger vision around our firm in some areas that I would imagine many people don't know exist, don't know are an opportunity, an option. And I wonder first to set the table 
do you believe that I am accurate to paint the picture of a lot of people that are investors and are perhaps right-wing and or faith-oriented are very frustrated and fearful of various things they see, call it wokeism, ESG, progressive climbing into Wall Street, corporate boardrooms, whatever the case may be, and that their uh, thought is one of desperation and even surrender, and that there may be alternatives they don't know about. Yes, all yes to all three of those. Um, we're we're concerned and we're upset. Um, we're we are desperate about it, and in many cases we've pre-surrendered. Um, we've surrendered in a battle that we have not yet even joined, which is a very odd thing to do <laughs> to say in advance. We can't win. Um, so I mean, in some sense, we've already been losing but we've been losing battles we haven't been showing up for. Or to use a sports analogy, uh, I mean, imagine that there's, you know, 30 baseball seasons of losing, but you didn't know there was a game and you didn't show up. And so every loss wasn't a loss, uh, the normal loss of uh, fewer home runs, but the unusual loss of a forfeit. We forfeited and then said the game is unwinnable. And therefore, what we need is more government regulation, or maybe we don't need more government regulation. Maybe the game's over, that's it, head for the hills. Um, and I think that that's odd because a lot of the people who are most in um, defeat role were people who were denying the problem before. So it's not a problem, it's not a problem, it's not a problem, it's not a problem for decades. And then it's such a big problem that we can't possibly do anything about it. Um, it was a problem, but, and it is a big, and it's gotten a, to be a bigger problem because of our neglect, more neglect won't make it a smaller problem. Um, what will make it a smaller problem is to get out there and engage on these issues. And we have enormous authority, uh, to do so in our system of, of, uh, shareholder capitalism, which still exists legally. Mm -hmm. Whether there's been a philosophical shift or not, I don't even know how big a philosophical shift there's been. In some sense, it feels like some of these companies who signed on to stakeholder capitalism were doing a little pinch you know, of incense to the emperor, but just kept on doing business as usual. Uh, but it seemed like a good thing, and maybe you'll get a plaque, and maybe your kids won't complain uh, about you as much or whatever. But um, you know, what, what we find is that um, legally, in the end, shareho shareholders decide who the members of the board of directors are in the same sense that citizens decide who the members of borough council and, or the county commission or the United States Congress or the occupant of the white house. We decide those things with our votes as citizens. Um, and in some States you can put an initiative on the ballot yourself. A citizen can essentially put legislation in front of other citizens. Well, uh, or you can go to a town council and give them, you know, give them what for, um, and, uh, well, in the system of corporate governance, which is largely based on the U S system of American governance, this is something that, um, um, was pointed out before that in essence, this, we didn't base the president on the CEO, American corporations based the CEO on the office of presidency. Um, and so our, our corporate governance is largely functioning in the same way. So there are analogous powers 
that shareholders have that are similar to the power that citizens have. Uh, but imagine here, switching analogies because we know from the uh, tip survey, the investor business, investor business daily survey, we know that the views of shareholders are more conservative than the views of citizens in general. So essentially the shareholder um, shareholder class, our friend Larry Kudlow would refer to the shareholder class. Um, the shareholder class is a red state. But oddly enough, it's a red state that has lost every major election for a couple of decades because it didn't know an election was being held or because it delegated its voting to proxy entities or to money aggregators, money managers like the Black Rocks and Vanguards of the world, trusting that they would vote in accordance with our worldview and our set of virtues and values, and they didn't. So that's the situation that, we're in. Is the context of that uh, conservative that shareholders generally score is more conservative than the nation at large? Is that likely more in an economic and political sense than a moral, social, cultural sense? Uh, both, but mostly the economic sense. Yeah. I mean, obviously, shareholders are more inclined to want lower capital gains tax rates and lower dividend rates than non-shareholders, but generally are more conservative. And especially as liberalism turns into progressivism and progressivism turns into wokeism, an increasingly intolerant cult, um, a secular religion, um, but without mercy. At least the other religions each have some kind of doctrine of mercy. Mm -hmm. Wokeism has no doctrine of forgiveness or mercy. Um, as that goes on and more and more, and shareholders are by and large older, um, there's a lot of pandering to millennials in the ESG movement, but millennials don't have a lot of money. Baby boomers have a lot of money. So those shareholders are socially more conservative than the general public. And they're certainly more conservative than the ESG industrial complex, which claims to represent their interests. So shareholders have um, rights. They have abilities to do things. And your argument is that they haven't been showing up. And then either because they didn't know there was a contest or they are um, giving their rights in that contest away to the Black Rocks or Vanguards or what have you. I wonder if those two things are connected, that many are giving away their rights and, and don't know they're even giving them away and don't know what it is that they're giving away. Um, talk a little bit about what that process that you're describing is. Well, the process of using your rights um, also explains to some degree why they've given the right away, because the process is clunky. It doesn't seem designed to make it easy for you. So let's say that you are the shareholder um, in a company. I don't mean the shareholder in a mutual fund or an ETF. I mean a shareholder in the company. Um, you, you, and let's say you're working with a broker or advisor. You make a choice. You can say, I'm going to delegate to the advisor the vote for this, or I'm going to keep that to myself, right? Um, well, advisors are not equipped to do this. It's not, it's not part of advisor school to know how to circumnavigate the uh, Byzantine process of voting proxies. So advisors kind of aren't terribly interested in it. They don't know how to do it. Um, and they've seen it as more a compliance function, a chore, than it has been a value add. Now that has shifted quite suddenly. And now it's a huge value add, but in, historically it hasn't been because clients haven't been aware of the issue. Or the client can say, no, no, I'll vote them myself. And, and then what they get is they get this giant proxy statement, 80 or 90 pages long, 
it's written in gobbledygook. Um, it can, if it's paper. Uh, so I've talked to many, many clients who get it and they simply delete it. They don't know. How, it's not that they don't care. They don't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, what and, I started should to do they, is, should they care, um, know how to deal with it? Should they care? I think a great analogy is homeowners, uh, doing a mortgage and they also get 90, a hundred, 200 pages of gobbledygook as we scientifically refer to it. Well, what does a, a home borrower want to know, need to know? That they're being lent money, collateralized by their home, what the expectation of payment is. You have this interest rate, amortizes over this period. You know, there's some math. That's about it. Right. There's 100 plus pages of stuff that they don't know about, don't care about, largely there for justifying a significant legal infrastructure cottage industry. And they understandably don't read it and they sign the docs. And it's pretty rare that, that matters that something comes up where you should have said, seen the fine print on page 29, because if you had seen that, you would have known that this or this, for the most part, what you see is what you get. So I think about shareholders, uh, both being one and, of course, working as an intermediary on behalf of many of them as a professional money manager. I think they care about um, the general operation and success of the company, it, the relationship of that to the share price. Perhaps there's other elements around the dividend payment and the um, uh, process of stock buybacks, their risk of dilution and or whatever. But for the most part, something related to the pragmatics of performance. Are these 300 pages of gobbledygook um, – are there material things in there they should be seeing or is there ignoring of them akin to the mortgage? I think it's akin to the mortgage and it is in some sense, uh, uh, something economists call rational ignorance. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't need to know. Yeah. Um, except that there's a cultural shift and, um, such that, all of American life is becoming politicized. Um, and I, I believe as a conservative and as a Christian, and those things are related because of the fallen nature of, of human beings, that institutions left unguarded will rot. And I think conservatives, there's a kind of a dictum among cons some conservatives that every institution that you don't actively try to keep conservative will automatically move left along with the rest of the culture. Um, and for some reason, we think that we thought that didn't apply to corporate boardrooms mm -hmm. and it did. Um, and we thought it didn't apply to corporate boardrooms and it was done in a more surreptitious way, I think, than the capture of other institutions. I, I, like, I don't think people were really so shocked as academia moved left. We might have been shocked how left it went, but we knew that there was a drift to academia. We knew there was a drift to media. We knew there was a drift in our politics. And somehow we didn't see that drift going on in corporations until it reached a point where it was overwhelming. Um, and at this point, I, it's I a little bit passing, like- I think you're passing over something that might be much more pertinent than you even think it is, that- what, that the analogy you're making um, that a lot of people were surprised and they shouldn't have been, um, I, and you bring up academia and that they weren't really surprised. And that may be true in a post-New Deal 
post-progressivism uh, uh, from the 1920s in a more postmodern world that we have had baked in as long as you and I have been around the belief that the academy had gone left. But even then, um, I'm not, I have never really understood why that was a given. We always hear the things like Harvard in the, in the 1700s was a Christian school. And then now we know it's a liberal bastion of progressivism. But I wonder if what you're describing with the corporate C-suite in the 2000s is analogous to what happened to academia, not in the 20th century, but in the 19th century. Yes. So I was speaking in the context of our generation. Yeah, right? yeah. When, when, when Buckley wrote God and Man at Yale, yeah. that was a shocker. Yeah. Because people thought of Ivy League universities as essentially conservative institutions because they were waspish uh, and elite. I, I mean, you know, for people thought of elite institutions as inherently conservative. Um, but that's certainly not the case anymore. Um, and so, yes, academia had been drifting in a kind of quiet way. And then it was so sudden that no one of our generation is surprised by it. I think something similar has happened. I, we're actually, we're not the same generation. I'm uh, quite a bit older than you. But uh, nevertheless, uh, no one of the past two generations, no one after Buckley. I'm, I'm, after, I'm after God and man at Yale. I did not yet exist when God and man at Yale uh, were written. Um, I don't think people are, I, I think the similar thing has happened with corporations. And I think it's the same issue, which is the agency problem when people don't have to live with the consequences of their decisions. Um, that's different. So they get to do virtue signaling with our money. Um, and I think we're outraged by that when we're outraged by what politicians do, we don't tear up our voter registration and we don't stay home on Tuesday. When we're outraged by what politicians do, we sign up. If we're not registered to vote, we register. And we say, now, when's the election day? Which is my polling place? Has my polling place been moved? We make sure to do something about it. But for some reason among conservatives, particularly Christians, the immediate response to bad behavior from a corporation is, oh, I want to sell that company because they're bad and I don't want any of their badness or sin in my portfolio. And by doing that, we're, in essence, we're, we're giving away the ability to uh, vote and to do something about this institution, which the worse it is, the more in need it is of our influence. So, so let's start with the extreme, because so far you're making the point that we have voting rights and that requires us to show up for elections and that there are bad things that we can influence as voters, which is equivalent to being a shareholder. And I'll play devil's advocate, and the audience already knows, unless they joined right here in the middle, and you already know based on many years of relationship, I'm in 100% agreement with you. But for the next few minutes, I'll play a little devil's advocate, because I think they're prima facie reasonable points. Um, if you lived, pick a, a particular city in the country that is one of the most liberal Democrat registration uh, you know, a Democrat has been elected from dog catcher to president in every race since, you know, what have you. And you move to that town um, and you're a conservative believer, person of faith, Republican registered, whatever the case may be. And you go there. Would you acknowledge that, yes, the person has voting rights and they should exercise them, but it's futile at the present tense 
in terms of real impact or change? Yes, you're unlikely to elect a conservative in Portland. Um, and that's I'd Portland, still, Oregon and Portland, Maine, but yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, I was thinking of uh, Portland, Oregon, Portlandia, yeah. um, I, but I would still vote. Um, I'm, I've lived most of my adult life in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, my candidates don't get elected, but I still vote um, because the obligation is not to win. The obligation is to speak the truth and exercise the authority and responsibility you have. Um, so you, you can't have an obligation to win because you can't be sure you're going to win. All you can do is have an obligation to try to influence things in the right direction. But it can also be surprising. So as we're as we're naming the cities, you know, Portland or New York City um, or any of the others, Austin, Texas and Chicago, Illinois, uh, let me throw in Nineveh, uh, Assyria uh, seemed unwinnable. Yeah. Um, you just never know what happens when you show up. So I'll, I'll give you an example of a situation I had. Now, this is not a particular company, but this is bigger than a company and harder than a company. Um, almost the, the, the biggest players in this are the proxy services. Yeah. So the proxy services, basically your large ma your money manager, your giants kind of follow their own counsel, but a money, if you have a mutual fund, they're trying to decide how to vote. They don't know how to vote either. I mean, that's not their job, but they have to vote. Um, so they go to ISS or Glass Lewis, and there's a few others, but between the two of them, that's 95% of the market. And they say, how should we vote on this? Well, those, those groups definitely have an ideological bias. And I've dealt with, you know, several of them, um, including the largest one, um, at great length, uh, over about three or four years, I've been arguing with them about a number of issues, including abortion. For the since 2019, there have been several proposals that have been put on ballots um, that essentially push a company to divest from pro-life states. We can get into more detail if you want, because they never say just do this. They say do a study about the risk of doing business in a pro-life state. But the the end game is obvious. They want you to punish pro-life states um, or threaten to punish them. Um, and, um, ISS, which is the largest of the proxy services was consistently recommending yes votes on these. Uh, and they were getting really high votes for such an out there proposal. That's not the kind of proposal that ever wins, but they were on Walmart, TJ Maxx and others lows. They're getting 30 in, in, in one case, in excess of 40%. They almost won. Well, ISS this year, um, so far has had a recommendation of no. Uh, for instance, we recently had the Costco annual meeting and the Costco annual meeting, I looked in the portal and ISS was recommending a no vote on this. And by the way, there are more of these coming up um, this year. There's going to be a lot of these abortion resolutions. It didn't get 40% of the vote. It got 15% of the vote. It got the lowest that any of these have, have gotten. Um, they're losing ground. Now, I can tell you that when I talked to colleagues about ISS, they said, why are you going to talk to ISS? And I said, well, ISS is never going to change their minds. I said, me of little faith, but that's not our job. Our job isn't to change their minds. Our job is to reason with them and, and, and say, first of all, this is not right. Second of all, this is, not a sh this is not a shareholder risk situation. This is somebody taking their political agenda and, and you know, wrapping it up as risk management. 
it's an absolutely silly argument to say that pro-life, the argument is, well, in pro-life states, because women are going to be forced to have babies, that gets them out of the workforce, you're going to have a labor shortage. Well, wait a minute, we just found out that that um, in North Carolina and Georgia uh, and Texas are some of the fastest growing states in the union. People are moving from north down to south and they're pro-life states. So I'm sorry, uh, you, you might have to justify being in New York if you're worried about worker shortage, shortages, but you don't have to justify being in North Carolina. So it's a silly argument, but they understand that it's a silly argument and they change their recommendations. And I suspect that when all is said and done, you know, later in the year, when we see the reports of the institutions, you know, the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the rest, we're going to see that they didn't vote for this. We've, it's already, the needle is already moving and we've hardly done anything. And what do I, we, I don't say we, me, there's plenty of people in this space. There are people who've been doing this for uh, longer than I have, but it's still a very small group. I can sit in on an annual meeting and hear 200 questions from the left and one from the right in an open meeting where everybody has access to the mic. So we've barely shown up and we're, and already the needle is moving. Uh, Jerry, do you believe that someone's shareholder activism should be in concert with their um, worldview, uh, uh, excuse me, their activism should be in concert with their enthusiasm for the investment merits of the company, or should it be there despite investment merits? And so what I mean by that is I'm presupposing one's a shareholder because they believe in the company and they're an activist because they believe in the company as a profit-making enterprise and yet they're an activist in the sense of exercising shareholder rights and other things like that, voting, because they're trying to protect their investment. Do you believe one should be becoming a shareholder for contrary purposes, becoming an activist despite not believing in the profitability, potential, business upside of the company? And there's a reason I'm asking this. I'm not opposed to that. It's not my calling but I'm not opposed to somebody buying shares so that of a company that they don't think is a good investment so that they can show up. I mean, that the left did that. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, 30 years ago, some liberation theology, none would buy one, you know, one share of a semiconductor uh, uh, company so they could go and, you know, berate TJ Rogers for, for, on the evils of capitalism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, that's not the way I would want to spend my time, mm -hmm. uh, but I can see that I don't, I don't despise that calling the way I, for me, I think of the investment decision as one that you make largely for investment purposes. You choose a company that you think is a good company, meaning it's going to give you its higher probability of good returns. Um, but if they wander, I think you intervene for two reasons. One, if they're wandering, they're losing their focus and you're protecting your investment. But two, you have views and you have a right to express those views. And if they're wandering into, if they're wandering into something that, that, that won't hurt them, but is still wrong, I would still use my voice um, to say, you're still moving in the wrong direction. Um, and so I can tell you, when I talk to companies as a shareholder on behalf of shareholders, what I say is we like you. We don't put our money into junky companies. We put our money into high quality companies. With, you're, you're a great company. We've put scarce, or, or what I'm we're representing a money manager, we're allocating scarce client resources to you because you're a great company. Now, what are you doing throwing yourself into the middle of 
gay marriage, abortion, carbon, net carbon, when you're not even an energy related company, uh, or what, you know, whatever issues are coming down the pike, why are you pontificating? Why is the CEO pontificating on religious freedom restoration act, et cetera, yeah. uh, when it's not your core issue, uh, be, be the excellent company that, that we bought. Don't lose your focus. So the reason I ask is because I think there's a big difference, and I'm with you. I, I wouldn't state that I think it's wrong, but I would state that I think it is different. Um, becoming a shareholder for the purpose of pressure and, and activism and an agenda versus doing pressure, activism, and agenda in alignment with your shareholder status. And the left, I think, um, has largely started as a um, more evangelistic, co contrarian activist. They didn't go say, we need to get on the board of Facebook to make sure that they're doing the things they want, which, by the way, would have been quite ironic since they would have immediately realized that they only get one vote for every hundred votes Zuckerberg gets. <laughs> and they would have had to rationalize their almost perfect score for ESG governance, uh, which remains to me, one of the self-defeating hypocrisies of ESG, the way they ignore governance uh, and, and uh, to look over carbon to carbon footprint instead. But be that as it may, um, I believe that the, idea of one who defends a free society, has certain um, convictions around economic freedom, one who uh, has certain faith, worldview, and morality principles that they want upheld. I believe that them going in to buy shares is uh, for the purpose of rabble-rousing, while maybe not wrong, is categorically different than an investor um, exercising rights to defend their investment. And that, unfortunately, the, where there is right now a little wake-up call for engagement, it's taking the shape sometimes of an anti-ESG form of ESG. Yes. An inverse playbook. Or, yes. or the same playbook with an, for an inverse agenda. Right. Do you think those distinctions matter? I I think they matter to companies. Okay. I can tell you that there's a different. Well, they matter. They obviously they matter to clients, yeah. right? Your clients want you to choose companies that are likely to fulfill their financial goals, right? Rather than engage in political hobbying. Now I understand the. So do you think if I did a speech to clients saying, "Come invest money with me," I'm not looking to get a great return for you, but I'll tell you, we got a hell of a a rabble rousing platform going join the fray. Do you think I'd get a lot of clients from that? I don't. I think if you were running an activist organization, and I've noticed this, and this is true with friends and colleagues, they score points. So the brag point will be, hey, I asked Tim Cook a question and I really tripped him up and he really looked like a fool. Or I really made Larry Fink look like an idiot and, and he's mad at me. Um, I understand that if you're seeking contributions from the grassroots, that kind of point scoring is a kind of currency, but that's alien to my thinking. And, and companies treat that differently too. So when I'm talking to someone from investor relations, just talking recently with a large 
um, company that's a uh, an insurer, an insurance company. It mattered to him that I was there on behalf of investors, not activists, and that we weren't trying to create a little show out of it, and we weren't trying to trip them up. I said, you know, sometimes people buy shares just to trip trip you up, and he kind of laughed. Yeah, do I know that? Yes, I know that. And so the relationship really is different when I say. Uh, the, the people that I'm talking to, the, the, the people whose essentially control number I'm in this meeting under, right, the, the shareholder, they, they, they like you. They think you're a good insurance company. Um, so they just want you to be better. Uh, and being better is staying more focused and not getting pulled around. And I can tell you the, relate, the nature of the conversation when it's a financial professional talking to a financial professional uh, who is actually trying to persuade and not score points, um, it really is a far more constructive conversation. And and so um, we're left with the belief that the pursuit of the profit motive and strong investor returns and an efficient allocation of capital towards the delivery of goods and services is a good thing, and that sometimes can take the shape, uh, take form in public equity markets. Uh, we like the multiple expansion and the liquidity. And so there's all these elements we believe in. And yet now we know we don't have to do that by giving in to business roundtable or ESG or this notion that the proxy services and Larry Fink are going to be in charge of everything that we have rights and that we simply have to show up to exercise them. So then my question is how can an investor efficiently, effectively use those rights for maximum leverage? Maybe talk a bit about some of the engagements that you're a part of. Well, it's tough to do on your own. And you may, someone might say, well, of course you say that because you do it on behalf of people. And my answer would be, no, it's the other way around. We had no idea that this would ever be a business. Yeah. I was just involved with money management, you know, helping to design ETFs and doing macroeconomic forecasting. And I said to some of my colleagues, things are really getting to be a problem out there in proxy world and in corporate boardrooms. And I'd like to talk to these companies. Um, so I'm going to talk to these companies. If you don't say anything, I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> yeah, but see, I think, I think that um, what the criticism someone would say is, of course, you're saying it because this is what you're doing. And your point that actually you didn't know and it kind of unfolded later. But I always yeah. say like I go on TV and talk about dividend growth investing and people say you're, you're talking your book. And I say, well, I certainly am. The only thing is you don't know what was the chicken or egg. Am I, is it right. my book because I believe in it or do I believe in it because it's my book? You, the fact of the matter is it's the latter. And so what's your point? You know? Um, I think exactly. And you've, oh, and you've written in a great deal of detail about that. Yeah. that I mean, if this isn't your book, if this isn't what you really think, then somebody has been writing highly detailed analysis for a decade uh, on the dividend growth strategy. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll say something something else about that. It, you know, why did I get in? I, why did I get into this? I don't know because I hated every minute of it. It, it felt entirely like duty. So it's it's bureaucracy. I hate bureaucracy. It's paperwork. I double hate paperwork. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I didn't like any aspect of this. I just felt that, that we could no longer expect these institutions not to rot 
unless we poured salt on them. Yep. Um, and so I wasn't paid for it. I didn't expect to be paid for it. I just did it because I thought we got to do something. I didn't like, if a company's giving money to Planned Parenthood, no, I don't think that means it's sinful for me to own Bank of America because they're giving money to Planned Parenthood and therefore I have to have a screen. I, you can still own them. Their sins are not your sins, but you know, uh, you know, like Jesus sitting down with tax collectors and prostitutes, he can hang out with you know, people who are behaving badly, but he didn't just eat. <laughs> I mean, he spoke. So why not talk to these companies? And um, I have a friend who got um, Chevron to stop giving money to Planned Parenthood. They still don't. AT&T, the same thing. Because of this shareholder engagement, I was able to go back to AT&T and confirm that they're not giving to Planned Parenthood anymore. Uh, there's another company that we're dealing, we're talking to right now. We're, go, we're making sure you're giving money to Planned Parenthood. So it felt like duty to me. But what happened is financial advisors began to hear about what was going on and their clients were saying, I, I want to sell such and such company because they're boycotting Georgia because they're a heartbeat state. And, the, and a lot of the advisors didn't really know how to deal with it. And what happened, the traditional sin screen measures weren't really doing it. Like, is there porn? Is there tobacco? Is it a brewery? Get rid of them. Because headline risk was beginning to drive things. Are they threatening to boycott Indiana, Indiana because of Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Are they boycotting heartbeat states? Are they offering to reimburse for abortion? Those were the drivers. So, the, so advisors didn't have equipment to deal with this. So they started coming to me to say, well, how do we deal with this? And I realized that having built an infrastructure to do this for a company that I was already working for, that infrastructure was transferable to other advisors and other other money managers. What about in, in areas that are a little bit less ground zero of the culture war? And what I mean by that is the the marriage uh, heartbeat, various aspects of uh, sexuality. Um, you know, these are pretty uh, uh, you know multi decade hot potatoes. And you and I, as men of faith, have strong convictions on these issues. But what it seems to me is sort of fired this stuff up now is a little less in their um, kind of bedroom policies, if you will, and more in their HR department, the, yes. the DEI, the uh, diversity training, that there is significant cost to shareholders for the implementation of a rather radical agenda that is more than just a violation of conscience through some of the sinful and problematic and immoral allowances, but is directly harming shareholders from a PL standpoint. Do you make a distinction between these two errors of uh, corporate uh, policy? Yes. I think if a company panders on abortion, it's not likely to affect the bottom line one way or the other. So, that for me is a conscience issue. I engage the way, on that Jerry, issue. I, I suppose, and it's appalling to even say it. I suppose some could argue that in some cases it helps. Like if they say we're going to pay for them to go cross state lines to get an abortion, and right. that helps us retain more employees or something. I mean, God, I, it's awful that that may be the case, but it's it's a potential argument they could even make well that was that was an argument that as you saw was making two years ago with these proposals basically you know uh, maternity leave is expensive 
Uh, I mean, it's a gruesome logic. Um, yeah, that's but, a more but, yeah. a more sadistic way of say. I was just thinking <laughs> employee retention, but I guess you're right. That's even. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm saying it maybe a little bit more yeah. bluntly than yeah. than they said it, but it's, essentially, it's the same argument. Yeah. Uh, of course, it depends on the industry. I mean, I keep thinking about the controversy um, when the Susan Komen Foundation stopped giving money to Planned Parenthood, and then it reinstated giving money to Planned Parenthood. There was a debate over at Toys R Us. And they decided to go with the Planned Parenthood funding Susan Komen Foundation. Um, in their bankruptcy statement, Toys R Us cited as one of the causes of the bankruptcy of the company was a falling birth rate. So um, it, to me, it is absolutely amazing that a toy company, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't want anyone to be giving money to Planned Parenthood, but for a toy company to be giving to a foundation that's giving to Planned Parenthood, consciously knowing that that was what the controversy is about, is just absolutely appalling, not just morally, but prudentially. Um, so and there's a recent case where Microsoft came out and you know complained about the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Um, I brought it up at the annual meeting. Um, two days later on a, a podcast, they were complaining about the worker shortage. And uh, hey, can we teach your grandfather to you know to program apps? Well, okay, but uh, can you see any possible tension between your advocacy of abortion no. and a worker shortage? Um, but no, they're, they're blinded to that. But yeah, some issues are definitely it, it is demoralizing to uh, a workforce to be subjected to critical race theory based human resources training. Um, it's demoralizing to move away from a meritocratic system to some kind of system based on race or sexual identity. So those issues do have an extra. Other than that, I, I should have been more clear. I'm saying your senior VP, your talent, you've been there a long time. And if you don't do this, you're going to get fired. Yes. They're willing to sacrifice talent who won't bow the knee to um, best case tokenism and and trite silliness and worst case abject evil yeah i think that happened with a senior executive at levi strauss who was not willing to toe the line on i believe it was transgender issues um another example would be there's a worker shortage cvs um accommodated um nurse practitioners who, whose conscience said i can't prescribe um, abortifacients. But there were others who could prescribe them, so it was fine. And then they fired a nurse practitioner. Now, the, now CVS and Walgreens currently have a worker shortage and they're cutting back on hours. There's a shortage of healthcare workers. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of pro-life nurses. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of women of faith. I know there's male nurses too, but there's a lot of women of faith uh, who are pro-life um, and you're going to lose them. And they're in demand and they'll go someplace else where they're respected. So it it does make a difference. So yes, I make the distinction. I think you engage in both cases, but in some cases, there is a prudential self-interest argument in favor of engagement, namely protecting your investment from poor management. And I'd say DEI is a is a big part of that. And pushing out a CEO, for example, you know, you think about Mozilla and Brendan Eich, you know, he had given money to um, the marriage cause, you know, years before and he was doxxed and let go as the CEO. Was he the right CEO or not? If he's the right CEO, I mean, if, if you've hired the wrong guy, 
well, that's fine. Then admit your mistake. But if he was the right CEO, if he was the best choice and he was dumped because he was opposed to same-sex marriage, then you are misusing shareholder resources. You know, the, you know, I, I agree with these analogies. The Levi Strauss one was outrageous. Uh, the Mozilla situation is high profile, well known, was sort of the beginning of this battle in a lot of ways. That was an early shot across the bow in Silicon Valley. But I think that the far lower hanging fruit of atrocity here is not headline. It's not on CNBC. It's not CEO. It's middle managers. It's lawyers in the legal department. It's senior VPs, department directors um, that that routinely are pu are pushed aside, not promoted, often fired. They put something on social media that they voted a certain way or what have you, and they're told they have to stop. They don't want to do the training. They object to things. Um, I know particularly, I think, of somebody. Um, actually, you may even know the person, but we certainly know common friends who know this person, won't say any names, but worked in a senior level in the legal department at Citigroup for many years and was having the, I mean, for 30 years and was having the fight about not wanting to go through the utterly cartoonish DEI training. So whether it's the CEO um, or, or something that seems down the totem pole a bit, I, I find, and you know, we in my firm sold every share of Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola was one of the great dividend growers in American history, still is. Uh, since 1984, it has an over 100% per year cash on cash return now. If someone had been reinvesting the dividend, and now today the dividend would be over 100% of what they paid for the stock in uh, 1984. And yet they announced that they were done paying legal bills, done hiring uh, lawyers, law firms that couldn't demonstrate their hiring diversity demands. This is a company in a $9 billion litigation right now with the IRS. Mm -hmm. They can't afford to be playing these, you know what, games. And so to me, it was a shareholder decision that, that they were playing reckless and we had to abandon, but I would think that that element becomes one of the clear examples yeah. of them violating fiduciary duty to shareholders. And I think it's especially a lawyer thing. Most of the stories I've heard, I've right. actually met recently with a very high net worth attorney who's retired, who's and you know potentially wants to do this engagement um, because he just wasn't willing to endorse. I forget what what it was. Um, but something with the alphabet, one of the alphabet causes. Um, and so there has been um, an, an exile of talented conservative and Christian lawyers from large corporations. Um, and as we become a more litigious society, do you really not want them? It's, it's, it's a little bit similar to the healthcare workers. There's a shortage of healthcare workers. Do you really want to drive somebody out uh, over, you know, they, the one abortifacient a month that they won't prescribe? Uh, just because you want to pander, and the same thing I think is happening with uh, with attorneys as well. And and by the way, if it's material, I would do what you did, which is fire the company. If they're be if they're behaving that badly, then it's not a great company that's making a mistake culturally. It is no longer a great company if it's making high level 
operational decisions based on political ideology. Yeah, by the way, Jerry, do you know how that thing ended with Coca-Cola? No. Their chief diversity officer guy they hired who did it all and was firing law firms, Jones Day, do, I mean, just doing crazy things. Then they ended up saying, okay, he's a loose cannon. They got rid of him. He worked there for six months, got a $5 million severance. I remember that. Amazing. Real shareholder yeah. friendly. Yeah, exactly. Just pay him to go away. I mean, he never, he shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. Yeah. Um, now maybe if you're trying to get it, there, there's Coca-Cola consolidated, which is a far different cultural company, which I assume might have growth dynamics similar to Coca-Cola, but that's more an investment conversation, um, than it is. Yeah. Which we, but, we uh, do plenty of that on, on capital record as well. I, you know, it's funny cause I, I waited for some people to point out when we sold Coke, David, you got plenty of other companies doing just as much woke stuff. But um, I wanted to particularly highlight the high profile dynamic of this law firm issue with the context right. of that $9 billion suit lingering over, uh, lingering over them. And, and yet why I believe so much of what we deal with, and I know you see it too, I do think all the business roundtable signatories were virtue signaling. And I do believe a lot of the um, things that some companies are doing are pharisaical more than substantively damaging. And I think that distinction matters to me as a fiduciary. Yes. Um, kind of a more rapid fire thing as we get ready to close up. Do you think that some of the C-suite you're able to engage with, have started conversations with, do you think they're surprised to know that people of our worldview exist? Or do you think they knew, but just sort of didn't have to deal with because no one was engaging? Or is it news to Netflix that a lot of people think Dave Chappelle is funny and should be allowed <laughs> to tell transgender jokes? Is it news to Disney that a lot of people find this LGBT uh, 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 forcing the agenda to be offensive? Are they surprised that people like us exist? I think that theoretically they know we exist, um, but they don't, but they're still shocked when they meet us because they, they've never heard any of these things. And I can tell you, I've had so many conversations with people where, first of all, they don't even hear first uh, because they don't have shelving in their mind. When I talk to them about viewpoint diversity, they say, oh yes, diversity. Here's our diversity lineup. Is it? No, 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 no viewpoint diversity. Well, I don't, I don't know what you're referring to. So no one has ever talked to you about viewpoint diversity ever. I had a conversation like that with someone from the proxy services that, so that's their whole field. Um, or I remember having a conversation with an industrial company in the Northeast investor relations. Um, and she said, Oh, we're very diverse. She said, we, we have all the letters. And I said, what are the letters? And she said, L G B T Q. And then she stopped for a moment, wanted to know if she's missing any letters. You know, was anyone taking notes? You don't want to miss any letters. And I said, what about C? And she said, what's C? I said, Christian. C is Christian. Is that, do you have, are, are, do you protect somebody from firing if they express Christian convictions? Oh, I'm sure we do. I'm sure that's part of our diversity. Well, I'm looking, ma'am, I'm looking at your website right now. Show me where I should be looking, where I would find uh, that religion in general, I can't even find a burqa on yours. 
you know, it's like if there's religion, it's going to be a, I can't even find the telltale burqa diversity. Um, so th they, it, it doesn't even occur to them. It's so alien, but, but of course they read in the Washington post and New York times that people exist out there in the hinterlands someplace who are, who believe in all sorts of crazy things, the flat earth and everything. I mean, they know that there are conservatives that exist, but it's like Pauline Kyle saying, I don't know how, how did Nixon get elected? No one I know voted for him. Um, so they don't know anybody like us. Um, and so, but what's fascinating is how constructive a conversation can be when they don't know anybody like us, because if they're going from zero knowledge of who we are and we put, or let's say 1% knowledge of who we are, and we put that up to 5%, we've quintupled their knowledge. So I think of this as we're in the phase where because there's been almost no witness to the truth, the upside is huge. Now, there's a long way from that to 50, 51%. I understand that. Um, but I do understand that in this phase, in this early phase, we can have impact far greater than, I, than we think we can have. I can tell you on the in the annual meeting with Hyatt, I brought up the, the issue of the Equality Act, which guts part of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the CEO said, basically, oh, we didn't know that. So I it went through the House. Maybe in the Senate, we can deal with that issue. In other words, they, they didn't know. Almost none of these people know that the Equality Act um, rescinds parts of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. No one told them that. And some of them actually change their behavior about it when they learn that there's a religious liberty. Did they change behavior because they were persuaded by substance or they got a little fearful of pragmatics? Different. Uh, um, in many cases, you have uh, increasingly what I'm seeing is apart from a few CEOs like a Mark Benioff from Salesforce, et cetera, or Larry Fink, who's trying to save the world. Uh, for a lot of these CEOs, they're just under pressure from one side and they just want to run a bank. Yeah. They just want to run a lumber company. They just want to run an energy company. That's all they want to do. And pressure comes from one side. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in conversations right now within an energy company. We've talked about this off air. Um, they're not going to challenge a proposal that's on the ballot because all the proposals on the ballot before have said, we want you to study the risk of, of using fossil fuels, of producing fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. And this proposal says, we want you to study the risk of not producing fossil fuels. We want you to study the risk of zero carbon emission. And that's a conversation that they want to have. They, if, if, if only one side shows up and that side disagrees with them, they want another side to show up so that at least they can maybe triangulate a little bit and say there's two sides to this issue now. I... um. It's interesting when you said the thing about 1% to 5%, I was thinking about that early stage level of leverage where you, you can move substantially. Um, and then of course there's a diminishing return, um, uh, as you climb up, but there are certain things I was thinking about Exxon. Um, well, what percentage of Exxon shareholders right now already want Exxon to be a really good oil and gas company? I think it's most, <laughs> and yes. and yet the the idea that we still have to be in front of a company like that, asking them to do the right thing, to stay uh, uh, focused on their mission, what they do, um, you know, if if Nike were one, which is not in our portfolio, it actually never has been. I've always looked at it. There's a lot to admire about the company. It's always been just a little too rich, you know, from a valuation standpoint for us. 
But if I were to look back on it, I would have guessed that activism about um, the Colin Kaepernick era would have uh, proven wrong, that they would have said, you're damaging shareholders by alienating middle America. And yet I have a feeling that they had a marketing savvy to their urban consumer that um, I bet they made pretty good money off of the way they played Colin Kaepernick. And so I'm wondering yes. where you have a, the, the, there's a tension that requires savvy. And that's why I like people being activist and procedural and thorough and diligent like you, but also knowing markets like, like you do and, and others in our space. I think you need both because, because Exxon should be told to be a good gas company because they're a gas company and they're going to set shareholder money on fire if they don't. And Nike's would have been a tougher call to make. You would have had to appeal to patriotism or, or something, but they, you know what I'm saying? There, there, there's, Oh yeah, absolutely. There, there's just, yeah. There's street cred with a Colin Kaepernick yeah. thing, but with Exxon, there's no, there's no, there's no upside, but what's amazing is you're right. I mean, obviously the shareholders, you know, want them to be an oil company, but none of the proposals up until recently have ever pulled in that direction. Every proposal has tried to pull them away from being an oil company. But in fairness, um, in fairness, the shareholders were not lazy or apathetic. It, it was news to them that there were people that could ever imagine becoming shareholders of Exxon to ask them not to be an oil company. It caught him by surprise. Right. It's a little, it's a little, it's a little unexpected. It's not on your bingo card that yeah. maybe Exxon and Chevron won't be oil companies. Yeah. Uh, plus the system is, I mean, I know a certain former president likes to talk about the system being rigged mm -hmm. from a voting standpoint. I, I can tell you that the system is not easy. Uh, the, 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 I've read that the um, typical vote rate for retail investors is 20%. If you have a nation, oh, wait. I'm sorry. Is that with proxies or without? Um, the vote, vote, voting with proxies. In other words, oh, yeah. the, the the percentage of retail investors who vote their proxies is twenty percent. Yeah. If you had a country where only twenty percent of people were voting, I would say either it's utopia; it's the most wonderful place on the earth. Why bother? Or it's really hard to vote. Um, in this particular case, it's hard to vote. Now, and they say, well, it's easy to vote. All you have to do is take your um, control number and log on and then put in your control number and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, except I got to I gotta sort through an 80-page document written in legalese. It's not easy to vote. Um, and I get, I'm not shaming people for not voting. I, I'm not. Uh, you know, I didn't for a long time. Uh, all I'm saying is, all right. We've already did it. We already did it. We already learned all these, not all of them. We've learned the arcane rules. We know how to do it. We're reviewing 4,000 meetings a year. Uh, we've helped vote for something like 40,000 proposals. We've done it now. Someone has gone and done all that. <laughs> so maybe it can be of advantage to you as well. Uh, by the way, it sounds like I'm advertising. I'm not. I'm not looking for clients. And I'm definitely not looking for retail clients. When I do an interview like this, someone will come to me and say, can you do this with my money? And I'll say, no, find an advisor um, who does this, and I'll work with an advisor. Um, uh, and shareholder meeting season is coming up, so I'm definitely not looking even for a lot of advisors. Um, but the, the point is, the hard part's done now. Um, there's a conservative group. By the way, we're not trying to turn these companies conservative. We're trying to depoliticize yeah. them. 
um, that can help you get through all of this. And that's and, what I meant before about the anti-ESG form of ESG, which has actually caught on a little with some of the brighter people on the kind of center left. I'm thinking of Matt Levine at Bloomberg, who's a very astute and, and interesting writer, left wing, uh, former you know attorney at uh, at, at um, Wachtell and and uh, I banker at Goldman Sachs. He's an elite guy, great writer, Bloomberg, and he's started now almost daily calling out the ESG movement that goes by anti-ESG. That they're kind of just asking for the same thing. We we want you know the, there's left wing people say we want to fire you because you're you're oil and gas. And then there's people on the right saying, we want to fire you because you're not this or that. You know, I, I think your approach is very different. And, I, and I'm trying to highlight that, those nuances for our listeners. Yeah, I think the only investment you ought to fire is a bad investment. Yeah. Not, not a company that makes bad political statements, but a company that's unlikely to meet your financial goals. Um, but since you're an investor and you have authority, I say use it. Or do you think that you know, do you think that it's going to correct itself? You know, uh, I mean, democracy corrects itself in the sense that we vote to correct it. Well, okay, there's a, there's an election every year for every company you own. Uh, maybe it's time we show up and vote. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I appreciate these insights. I got to say I'm positive that we have listeners that learned some new things today and hopefully were inspired or encouraged. Per perhaps there's a call to action. Um, and maybe there may be people listening that don't own public equities that don't have a balance sheet at this stage of their life, but they more have been culturally, um, involved because they're afraid of what they see happening. And maybe now they can get a little bit of this sort of post-millennial optimism that, uh, that you and I believe in, uh, feel a little better about the fact that there is a path ahead, that you don't win games that you don't show up for, and that uh, all is not lost. And I think that's one of the biggest things I could say, not merely about conflict in the corporate boardroom or the challenges being a public equity shareholder, even through ETFs, even if you have to touch Vanguard or Larry Fink, that there is um, an entire domain of opportunity. Uh, years to go in this. Lots of people like me, like you, that are in the fight with tons of um, changes going on, almost in real time, versus the sort of defeatism that you sometimes hear. Um, you, I like what you said. The, the game isn't rigged, but it's tough. It's tough. It's, it's tedious. Um, but I'll let you give the closing thought here. I, I just am grateful for you, what you're doing, and why don't you take us out? And I'm grateful for you as well for um, having me on this uh, marvelous must-listen-to podcast and uh, for working uh, with me on this issue. I, I suppose I was just thinking of, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings, and there's two characters um, that um, could be resisting evil. There's Denethor and there's Aragorn. And Denethor thinks they can't win. Um, and he says, flee. And Aragorn thinks they can win. Maybe they won't, but maybe they can. And he goes into battle. So which kind are we? I've heard enough Denethor in conservative. Um, I've heard enough of we can't possibly win against these. And even Saruman is, is a for, you know, foretaste of that. We can't possibly win. I don't think that's right. Uh, I think 
I almost think they can't possibly win. Mm -hmm. They're already losing and we've barely done anything. Yeah. It's collapsing of its own. Yeah. The tower is collapsing of its own weight. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't see how ESG can survive. Yeah. Um, but even if I'm wrong and even if we don't win, what does that have to do with anything? You, 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 you make your argument, you speak the truth that's your only moral obligation, but it is a moral obligation. And then you leave it to uh, Providence to determine the outcome. Amen to that. And to those listening to an economics podcast, wondering what we mean about the moral obligation, I want to remind you with no less than the great Friedrich Hayek said about our pursuit of economic and cogent economic thought. This is a moral adventure, hmm. moral adventure. Thank you for listening to the Capitol Record. Thanks once again to Jerry. Uh, he will be on for a fourth time in due time. I assure you of that. And uh, we would love for all of you to be subscribed to this podcast in the player of your choice. It helps us. And uh, we would love for you to forward this to those you think would be interested. We're going to keep doing what we do, not only engaging as shareholders and investors activist. Uh, we're also going to continue making the case every day for a free and virtuous society. We won't settle for anything less than the cause of human flourishing. Thanks for listening to the Capitol Record. Mm -hmm.